Today's scripture is John 8, 2 through 11. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. <clears throat> good morning to you. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome if you're new. We are actually celebrating our four-year anniversary right now as a church, as we've gathered as a community. Yes, it's, it's our birthday, and I was thinking, you know, five years is kind of a better mark to kind of celebrate four. You're like, what, what goes on in four years? And then I thought about my son, who's a freshman in high school, and I thought, and I, and I went back and I looked at my freshman yearbook picture, and then went and looked at my senior yearbook picture, and a lot happens in four years. I was like a different human after four years, and reflecting and thinking about what God has done in the midst of our community in the last four years. We are different humans in this room that started this journey and that have continued on it, and God has been so faithful and we're so encouraged that we continue to meet as a body and continue to trust God for what he has for us in the future. So um, it's great to celebrate that and um, excited to be with you. Would you pray with me as we do our best to dissect this peculiar story that we find ourselves in this morning? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Would you change our hearts and our minds to look like your son? We need that from you this morning. We need your spirit to waken us up to what is true. We trust you for that this morning, Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, the reason I mentioned that this text is peculiar is because if you have a physical Bible with you, you'll notice in your Bibles most likely that this passage we just read is in a double bracket. And if you follow down to the bottom of your Bible, you'll see a footnote that talks about this specific story maybe not being in the original manuscripts, that it's, in the, it's not in the earliest versions that we have of the book of John. Now, there's several reasons why this is the case. Some believe that they were taken out of the early manuscripts before we got them because they didn't want people to interpret this text as Jesus condoning adultery. Um, some others think that this actually should be placed after Luke 21, 
Um, they don't really like where it fits in John. It doesn't seem to flow with the rest of John's narrative. And so there's, there's all types of speculation about these verses that we just read. The difference is, out of all the study I did in the last couple of weeks, no scholar, even if they depend on where this should be placed, no scholar believes that this didn't happen. Every scholar would say this was an actual true story. It's been preserved. It's more of a placement issue. The other thing with this passage, its particularity, is it's kind of a weird story. We don't have all the pieces. Jesus is stooping down. He's writing. What is he writing? And everybody wants to weigh in on what they think he writes on the ground. And so that makes for all types of interesting commentary on what we're going to jump into today. So, I don't want us to focus on the placement of it, the story. I don't want us to focus on what he wrote in the ground. I want us to focus on what we do know about this text. And what does it have to tell us about the person of Jesus? What can we learn from the person of Jesus as we encounter these verses? Every semester, Scott McKnight, who's a professor of religious studies in Chicago, he gives his students a test on their first day of his class on Jesus. He begins the test with a series of questions about what the students think Jesus is like, his personality. Is he, is he moody? Is he get nervous? Is he the life of the party? Is he more of an introvert? What is Jesus like in his personality? The 24 questions are then followed by a second set of questions with slightly altered language in which the students ask, answer questions about their own personalities. Now, you know where this is going. McKnight's not the only one that's done this. Others have done this test, and the results are crazy similar. Everybody thinks Jesus is like them and their personality. And when asked about the test, McKnight says that even though we'd like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. And we've been looking and examining the person of Jesus in the study, Love Walked Among Us. And what does this story, this specific story, tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is the perfect embodiment of fullness of grace and truth. And for many of us, we want to lean one way or the other on that spectrum. We're usually all truth and high justice, or we're all grace and compassion. What we've done, a lot of us in the story, is we'll just put on Jesus, on our personality, and that's the way we'll lean. But let's do our good work at this text this morning and look at the fact that Jesus in his humanity actually is the fullness of both. He is fully grace and fully truth. So let's look at it. If you have a Bible, you can look down. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. This is what it says. It says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. If you're new to the Bible or Christianity, the scribes and the Pharisees of this time, there are the religious leaders of the day. Why do the scribes and Pharisees want to bring charges against Jesus? 
They're constantly trying to get Jesus arrested. We see this multiple times in multiple accounts in the gospel narratives. And they ultimately have an issue with him claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be God. But when you start to look under the surface at what's really going on and what Jesus actually calls them out for in their heart, the problem that they have with Jesus is they don't like what Jesus is saying and doing because he's threatening their security. He's threatening their prestige, their income. He was going to ruin everything they had worked so hard for. See, the religious leaders thought that if they were smart enough, they worked hard enough, if they prayed enough, if they were devoted enough, that somehow they would earn their way into paradise. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and the stuff he says and the stuff he does disrupts their understanding of control and self-righteousness. And for many of us, especially us in the church, we actually need our control and our self-righteousness disrupted a little by Jesus. So what's the setup? We see it here in the text. The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is teaching the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring this woman that's caught in adultery and they put him before her and they question what, what should we do with her. The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you think we should do? And we have to understand that the people that are trying to trap Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were experts in the Mosaic law. They found their identity in that law. And they know that Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but actually fulfill it. And we see in Matthew 5.19, Jesus says that anyone who relaxes the law or commands will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And so they know that Jesus doesn't think the law doesn't count. It doesn't matter, but he actually came to fulfill it. And, and so they're trying to push Jesus into this corner because they can get him to contradict himself. They can get him to mess up. They'll get the charges brought against them. Then he will be out of the picture and they can get back to life like they normally live life. Again, the problem is once we encounter Jesus, our lives are never normal again. And so what they are proposing is they ask him this question. They feel like they've backed him into a corner that he only has two answers, right? Because if he says, yes, we should follow the law of Moses and we should put her to capital punishment, then he is disobeying the Roman law. Because at the time, the Romans said, you can't enforce capital punishment. So he's tricked if he says that. But if he says, no, we should not kill her, let's follow the Roman law, then he's not upholding the law of Moses. And so they've got him in this situation. They feel like this has got to be the time that he's going to get trapped. Have you ever felt like you've been pushed into a corner where you've been trapped into saying only one of two things? One of my first memories, I was probably four or five, coming out of my bedroom, going into the kitchen, and my mom's there getting breakfast ready, and she says, oh, babe, I'm so sorry. We ran out of milk last night. I didn't have time to go to the store this morning, so she's fixing my Cheerios, and she says, well, we don't have any milk to put in the cereal, but you can put orange juice or water in there. And so I'm four or five. I'm going, well, I guess orange juice. Like, that at least has some flavor, like, I, okay, I'll do orange juice, mom. She goes, okay, so I'm sorry, honey. I'll, I'll go to the store today. We'll have milk. Okay. So I sit down, and I'm, man, that first bite is, is brutal. Um, Cheerios and orange juice. And I'm just like, this is, this is not right. This is not right at all. 
But what, I feel like it's probably better than water. And so I'm like a minute in about halfway through my bowl of cereal and my older brother walks into the kitchen. He's a year and a half older. Mom says the exact same thing, same speech. He goes, he looks at her sideways and just goes, well, just give it to me dry. And I was like, ah. Oh. I just give it to me dry. I didn't think that was an option. I thought I only had two options, orange juice or water. Give it to me dry. That would have been way better. Now, the illustration breaks down really quickly because my mom was not trying to trap me. She's not a Pharisee. And those of you that know my brother, he's not like Jesus. So it doesn't, it doesn't fully play in the context, but... This is what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to pin Jesus into a corner where he has to answer one, and either answer gets him in trouble and gets him arrested. That was their goal. The problem is they were trying to use the law against the person that wrote the law. And Jesus is wise in his understanding And we have to get a context a little bit because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament typically and we're not familiar with the law of adultery and capital punishment. So let's look at three passages just to give us some context and understanding of how they're trying to trap Jesus and what Jesus knows about the full letter of the law. Leviticus 20, chapter 10 says this, If a man commits adultery and the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22:22 says if a man is found lying with the wife of another man both of them surely or shall, shall die the man who lay with a woman and the woman you shall purge the evil from Israel one more in Deuteronomy 17 6 and 7 it says on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses the one who is to die shall be put to death a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall purge the evil from your midst. What do we learn from these three passages about the law that helps give us context for what Jesus is dealing with in the moment? The first thing is that the people in the form of adultery, they actually have to be caught in the form of adultery. It can't be like this guessing or, you know, I think this is happening. You have to actually be caught. It has to be more than one person that catches you. It has to be two or three witnesses we see from the text. We also see from the text that it's not just one person getting charged, right? We see that in the very beginning. So already you see there's an issue with how the scribes and the Pharisees are playing out this law. They only bring the woman. They don't bring the man. They both need to be held accountable for in adultery according to the law. And then the last thing which is really interesting as we get down to verse 7 in our text is... Deuteronomy 17 talks about that the hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death. Now, these are interesting laws, and the reason that God gives the law to his people is he's trying to help them learn what it means to be human again. Been enslaved in, in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, they come out and they have to have a new way to live. And God says, I care about you, I want your well being, I'm going to set up these guidelines so you can live fully. And with those guidelines, there are some heavy consequences to some of those things. And so, Jesus, as he gets Ask this question. He's not rejecting the law of Moses, but instead he's insisting that it be fully followed. The law of Moses 
Man, it sounds strict to the offender, but it's actually even stricter to the accuser. It almost makes it impossible to carry out capital punishment with the way the laws are fit together. And the Mishnah, which is the Jewish commentary on the law, said that a court that executed more than one person every seven years was considered a slaughterhouse. I think sometimes we read the Bible, we're kind of familiar with these biblical stories that people are just going around and stoning each other and killing each other all the time. But that's not actually what was happening. This was a rare occasion that we're seeing. And they're saying, listen, we want to put this woman to death because this is a major, major, major crime. But Jesus sees between the lines and he responds. Look at how he responds in verse 6, the second half. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So they say to him, what do you say? This is what the law of Moses says. What do you say? And Jesus doesn't say anything at first. Instead, he moves, bends down on the ground and makes an action as he draws in the ground and then he speaks. So what does he write in the ground? This is what everybody wants to know. Like everybody and their mom have a guess. What did Jesus write on the ground? Uh, We don't know. The text does not tell us. Here are, so I'm going to, you know, show my cards early. I'm going to say we ultimately don't know. Here's some guesses just to entertain you. I think these are interesting. Um, Some people think that he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13 on the ground, which says, all who turn away from God will have their names written in dust. They have forsaken the Lord, the living water, which would connect to the earlier passage of the chapter before in John chapter 7, where Jesus claims to be the living water. And so some people think he bent down and he was writing the names of those people that had rejected him, and they walked away one by one. Some people think that he bent down and he wrote the Ten Commandments, and specifically commandment number six is, thou shall not commit adultery. That he sits down and he writes out the Ten Commandments, and it's actually a nod to Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, where it's talking about the law, and it says in the text, written by the finger of God, and Jesus is claiming that he is God. Some also think that he wrote... Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then he writes Matthew 5.28, which he teaches earlier, where Jesus actually elevates adultery and says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, that is like adultery. Some people think he wrote Hosea 4.13 through 14. Hosea is a whole book in the Old Testament where this man, his wife, is continuing to commit adultery on him and God calls him to continue to pursue her in love and affection and it is a picture for God and his people as we continue to chase after other things and God and his holiness could break the covenant but he continues to pursue after us again and again and again. And in Hosea chapter 4 verse 14, talking about the daughter's Being promiscuous, it says, I will not punish your daughters or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And so some people think because he's bringing this woman in front and there's no man, and these other guys have issues with this stuff, that that's what he wrote. And one more, some others say that this has a direct connection to Numbers chapter 5 
which is a jealousy ritual, which in the Old Testament, if you thought your wife was cheating on you, but you couldn't prove it, nobody could, you couldn't trap her and see her, you would bring her to the priest to the tabernacle, and they would do this whole ritual where somebody would grab dust from, the priest would grab dust from the ground, and he would put it in a cup, living water, and she would, it was this whole thing. And so some people think it's directed to that. We don't know. We don't know what he wrote on the ground. It's super interesting. It's super curious, but we don't know. So let's focus on what we do know. We know what he said. Verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And Jesus in this moment, he's brilliant. Because what Jesus is saying basically is if you want to play by the Mosaic rules and the laws... If you want to trap me in those, we can do that game all day long because the scribes and the Pharisees who knew the law, they would know that Deuteronomy 19 in the law states that if you accuse someone of wrongdoing in a malicious way, whatever you suggest the consequences to be for that person will actually be done to you. So... The scribes and the Pharisees, especially the older ones that know that law, they're not following the full protocol of what they're supposed to be doing with this accusation, which means they're actually guilty of being stoned themselves. So they drop their stones one by one and walk away. And Jesus, in his grace and compassion, he doesn't blast them. He doesn't hold them accountable to Deuteronomy 19. He doesn't kill them right away. He lets them, in his grace, in his compassion, walk away and live. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus deals with these men that bring these attacks on him and these attacks on this woman, and he deals with them directly. He's bent over, and then he stands up, and he makes his focus on this woman. This woman that's been dehumanized. This woman that has been bait for the Pharisees' trap. They haven't treated her like a person, like a human being. They've treated her like an object, and Jesus stands up and focuses his attention on her. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, go and sin no more. Now, everything that I have read, and let me say this too about the scholars again um, that debate whether this should be in John or somewhere else. I, I didn't find anybody that didn't believe again this story actually happened. It was really true. I also don't, I, I didn't find anybody that was believing that she wasn't actually caught in the act of adultery. That from the text, from verse 4 and verse 5 and other places, it seems like she is actually guilty of the sin of adultery. And for us to really understand that, I think we need to do some cultural work. Because for us in America in 2019, we look at the sin of adultery, of you going outside of your marriage for sex, we, we kind of think that's kind of a normal thing. 
right? We see it on the screen all the time. We hear songs about it. We just believe that you need to do what's right for you in your heart. And so if you're in this cold, dead marriage, if he's not treating you right, if she's not treating you right, if you're not really in love with them, then you can go find it somewhere else. And we kind of think, okay, that's kind of okay. Our culture thinks that's okay. It's not okay. God is not okay with that. We need to feel the weight of what is happening in this moment culturally. This was, they're trying to bring the worst account of somebody that they can, and it is in the form of adultery. God knows that adultery breaks marriages, it kills families, it scars people forever. And we kind of think, well, you know, we watch a movie like Titanic, and we're kind of rooting for the two people to get together that shouldn't be together. This happens all the time because of the numbing of sexuality in our culture, because of what we feel like is important to us. And so it doesn't really hit us. This story doesn't really hit us as hard, I don't think. I want you to imagine, instead of the Pharisees using an object to trap Jesus, instead of them bringing a woman caught in adultery, what if they bring a man who's caught as a pedophile? Like, what does that do to you? Like, that should start to make you feel angry, right? That should, in your bones, you should feel like, whoa. And Jesus just lets this guy go? That's how the culture would have felt about the sin of um, adultery. It is a problem. And so clearly, Jesus does not condone adultery. We see in the language in verse 11, he says, don't sin anymore, as well as we already talked about, Matthew 5, 28, that he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So what is happening in this moment? If she is guilty, how can Jesus just let her go? If he's a just God, if he's a righteous God, how can he let her off the hook? only one possible way. The only way that he can let her go is because he knows he is going to take the penalty for her. She's meant to die, she's meant to be stoned, and he will be put to death. He will be the one publicly mocked and shamed. He will be the one spit on. He will be the one to take the whips. Not her. He will be the one that is separated from his friends. He will be the one that there's a split from the love of the Father. He is saying, I will take it for you. Now go and sin no more. And just like the woman... Our lives will end one day, and we will be all alone with Jesus. Everybody will go one by one, and it will be you in front of a holy God. And you will be guilty because of your sin nature, because we have all committed spiritual adultery. We have all run after things other than God to get our worth and our meaning. We've all done that. We've all chased after things and given our hearts to other things other than the Lord. But because of his saving work on the cross, because of his initiation of adoption of us as sons and daughters, because of the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Please, Please, we have to get this. We have to pay attention to the order of Jesus' words to this woman in verse 11. 
Look down at your Bibles. Pay attention to this. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He does not say, he does not reverse it. He does not say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Do you see that? That's really important because men and women, if we have to experience the grace of Jesus in our lives before we can pursue not sinning. Real grace comes freely, but then it gives course corrections in its destination. It challenges us and it grows us in our obedience. But if you reverse the order, if you reverse the order, if you try and not sin without an encounter of God's amazing grace, what do you, you think will happen? You will turn into a moralistic, legalistic, judgmental human that does not show compassion. Where are the areas that you need to come to the foot of the cross this morning? It's the only place where you can really, truly receive freedom. Jesus is truly the only one that can offer that type of freedom to you, and we all chase it in other places all the time. Where have you been chasing for that freedom like the scribes and the Pharisees? Trying to control and use your circumstances and individuals to control God and what he thinks of you. If you're really honest with yourself, you've been trusting in your own goodness. You've been trusting in your own hard work. You've been trusting in your own righteousness for your freedom. And Where have we been chasing after this freedom like the woman? Trying to give and receive love in places that are shallow that leave us feeling empty and shameful. It's only one place where we can get that freedom. Where do you go and try and find it if you're a mom and you're kids? If you're a husband with your wife, if you're a wife with your husband, if you're a business person in your sales and what you do, if you're a preacher in your good message, where do you go and try to find the freedom that only Christ can provide? And we all do it all the time. And so whether you don't know Jesus and you haven't made that first step towards him on the cross or whether you've known Jesus for as long as you can remember, we still all need to come to the foot of the cross for forgiveness and freedom. It's only one place that we can truly find freedom and that's at the foot of the cross. As we take communion This morning, those of you that are followers of Jesus, as you take that piece of bread, which is his body broken for you, just think about what God went through, what Jesus went through for you. He took the stones instead of the woman having to take them. As you take that piece of bread, which represents his body, and you dip it in the juice or the wine, which represents his blood shed for you, may you be reminded this morning in a fresh way of his sacrifice for your freedom, of his love for you as he chases after you. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit this morning. God, we confess, we run, and we chase after things that won't ultimately free us. Just like this woman, if she is let go and she says, no, I deserve death. And Jesus is saying, no, I'll take the death for you. A lot of us as Christians, we hold our own sin and shame. And Jesus is saying to let it go. Let it go and change your behavior 
because of my grace. I pray you enable us to do that even this morning. We love you and we trust you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.